Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to a special Remembrance Sunday edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's family stories come from land, sea and air and include the bond of brothers, outrageous courage under fire, a wartime honeymoon at sea and a journey that took one soldier through the gates of hell. begin this week with this from Darren Little. Hi James and Al. Absolutely loving the pod. This is for Paul Donovan, a rugby mate, who I've been doing a bit of research for. It's the story of his great uncle, Harry Langford Bell, and his time with the 2nd Battalion, Royal Killing Fusiliers. Harry was awarded a military medal and Distinguished Conduct Medal for his bravery in Italy in 1944 and 45. For his M.M., he was at the Battle of Garigliano, commanding a section in D Company. They were being held up by a machine gun on their right flank, on the Gustav Line, near Tufo, when Harry dashed forward, ignoring a burst of fire actually hitting his rifle, and killed two of the crew with a grenade, and took three prisoner. But for his immediate bravery, his platoon would have lost the benefit of the artillery fire preceding the attack. Harry's award was granted immediately by General Alexander. That wasn't an end to his bravery. In April 1945, he was involved in more action and was awarded his DCM, although originally he was recommended for a Victoria Cross. Under heavy mortar and shell fire near Argenta, west of Comaccio, Harry walked about calmly smoking a cigarette, giving his section orders as the rest of the men lay down taking cover. Twice, Harry was blown off his feet, but he dusted himself down and carried on with his rhetoric. With his behaviour that day, he gave his section and the rest of the platoon the greatest encouragement. Shortly afterwards they advanced, Harry leading his section in an attack on two MG positions. They were both silenced by Harry himself, but he was badly wounded in the right arm. His arm was all but severed below the elbow. Undeterred, he continued an assault on a house through heavy automatic fire, inspiring those behind him to take six prisoners and secure the position. The platoon reformed, with Harry stuffing his arm into his shirt to attack another enemy stronghold that included a self-propelled gun. Harry led his section, now down to three men and under heavy fire, across 400 yards of open ground. They destroyed one machine gun before a heavy mortar barrage stopped them. Harry was seriously wounded in his buttock. The commander ordered the section to evacuate, but Harry refused point-blank to move instead assisting the rest to get away safely. For two hours, under sniper and automatic fire, Harry gave covering fire, keeping the enemy heads down despite drifting in and out of consciousness. 
By now, his name was a byword in the battalion for self-sacrifice, inspiration, courage and coolness under fire. Amazingly, after his evacuation, Harry woke up in an ambulance to find his brother James, Paul's grandfather, treating his wounds. James was in the REMC. It took Harry two years in hospital to recover from his wounds. Harry passed away in 1994, but what a story to leave behind. The family are rightly proud of his achievements. Kindest regards, Darren Little. Our next story is from Dan Stevens. Dare we have ways. Firstly, what a great podcast. I've only recently started listening, and it's a bit like finding out you're a fan of P.G. Woodhouse and then realising he wrote nearly 100 books. Except, of course, Dan, we've done over 500 podcasts. Anyway, back to Dan. I thought you might be interested in my grandfather. Albert Meadows was born in 1912 in Bristol. He played as an amateur goalkeeper for Cheltenham Town. The local paper from 1932 has a picture of the team with him towering above the others at six foot four inches. He was the second of three brothers. The eldest, William, joined the army. The youngest, Freddie, joined the RAF Volunteer Reserve, as did Albert, and both were called up upon the outbreak of war. Albert was commissioned as a pilot officer in 1941 and made 48 operational flights. He then became an instructor and was promoted to flight lieutenant. Early in 1944, he volunteered for active operations again and was posted as a navigator observer to 139 Jamaica Squadron, which flew mosquitoes from RAF upward. On the night of 19th of May 1944, Albert was a crew member in a mosquito on a sortie to Cologne. Twelve aircraft took off. Four were hit by flak. Albert, sat in the navigator's seat, was killed instantly. His pilot, R.J. Wright, was unharmed and managed to fly the plane back to Upward. I find it hard to imagine what it was like for the pilot to fly him back home. Albert is buried outside Cheltenham. He left a widow and a daughter, my mother. Freddie stepped in after the war to look after my mother and grandmother. Family legend has it Albert and Freddie had agreed to look after each other's families, but seeing Freddie didn't have a family, we're not sure how true that was. Regardless, he was a wonderful great-uncle to me. My grandmother didn't speak about the war or about Albert at all. Freddie didn't speak about the war either, nor did he talk about his elder brother. I can only assume the pain of losing Albert was too much. A reminder that for all those who want to remember and celebrate the bravery and achievements of the war, for many it was perhaps best forgotten as quickly as possible. I only started investigating Albert's history after my mother died in 2019. Having obtained his service records, the RAF suggested I contact the MOD Medal Office. So I did, not really thinking anything more of it. Imagine my surprise when I received four medals and a Bomber Command clasp, the 39-45 Star, the Aircrew Europe Star, the Defence Medal and the 39-45 War Medal. There are a few tears outside Tooting Post Office when I opened the packet, I can tell you. It gladdens my heart to learn there's a department of the military who are tasked with issuing medals to all those soldiers and their living relatives, even 75 years or more after the events in question. We framed the medals with a photograph of Albert. When I underwent the same process for Freddie, I find he had exactly the same medals, and they too were never issued to him. I am also having those medals framed, and soon the two brothers can be together again on our wall. Your podcast often highlights the fact that the Second World War is still with us in many ways, and even today, 
is affecting our lives. Keep up the good work. Dan Stevens. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Next, we have this story from Jason Webber. Hi, we have ways. I'd love to tell you the story of my grandfather, George Raymond Heathcote. Though born George, he was always called Ray in the family. Apparently, his mum was a big fan of the American magician, the great Raymond. Ray worked as a steward on ocean liners from the age of 15. At the start of the war, he was called up and joined the Royal Navy. After gunnery training, he served on defensively equipped merchant ships, DEMS. The Admiralty fitted anti-ship and anti-air guns to hundreds of merchant ships that all had two to four Royal Navy crew, plus help from the merchantmen. In 1940, Ray's ship was sunk, probably by a mine, in the Irish Sea, where only 16 of 30 crews survived. He remembers the cold vividly and how grateful he was when an MTB picked him up. This really shook him up, but there was more to come. He took part briefly in the Dunkirk evacuation before further gunnery courses and a promotion to petty officer. Later in the year, he was part of a convoy of ten tankers, five of which were blown up around him. He described the sea on fire and how lucky he was again to come through it. In 1941, he was sent to the Far East, with his ship escaping Hong Kong just in time. In Singapore, he was taken from his ship to help man anti-aircraft guns in the port, but was ordered off the island at the last minute. He was listed as missing, assumed captured, for six months until the paperwork caught up. Promoted again to Chief Petty Officer, he was on several convoys between Liverpool and North and West Africa. 
It was here he caught malaria, which hospitalised him for over a year. He was somehow well enough during this time to court and marry my grandmother, Gladys. The honeymoon was apparently on board a ship in Liverpool. He had the shock of being told to report to combined operations and give an army khaki to wear, which he hated. He kept his navy cap. He became part of the crew of a block ship that would form the Mulberry Harbour at Aramolsh. Having scuttled his ride, he went ashore for a few days before returning to the UK for the rest of the war. On ships, he frequently became the barber for his messmates, telling them that the difference between a good haircut and a bad one was about two weeks. He cut my hair as a small kid, and used to tell me this too. A kind and generous man, it is him I usually think of around remembrance time. A big thanks to my cousin Matt, who interviewed my granddad in the 1990s as part of a school project. Without this, I'd never have heard many of these stories because, of course, he just didn't talk about it. Keep up the brilliant work, Jason Webber. Our next story is from Chris Owen Hughes. Dear James and Al, I'm writing to you to share the story of my great-grandfather, Keith Stevens. Unfortunately, I never met Keith. However, I was lucky to spend many happy years with Audrey, my great-grandmother, a fascinating lady born in 1906 in the Himalayas. But that's another story. At the outbreak of war, Keith and Audrey were living in Corfu. Audrey writes in her memoirs of lying awake at night listening to the sound of Italian bombs falling on Albania. Keith never spoke to his family about much of his war service, for reasons that will become clear. What we know has been pieced together over the years. On his return from Corfu, Keith volunteered for the Royal Marines. Thankfully, he was turned down. He joined the Military Intelligence Corps and was sent to Bulford Officers Training Camp, emerging as a captain. He was then moved 18 times around England in the following 24 months, Audrey following him from town to town, with my grandmother as a baby. Deployment finally came as part of the D-Day landings. He and his men were supposed to land on D-Day plus two. However, bad weather delayed them. When they eventually reached France, he and his section discovered they'd be assigned to the British Second Army. His section was involved in fighting on the Belgian border. Their reception in Belgium was overwhelming, with girls climbing onto the tanks and other vehicles to kiss the men. They were showered with gifts, crying and cheering. Keith was one of the first British soldiers into Bergen-Belsen, accompanying the doctors treating typhus but he never spoke of what he found there. He and his men spent many weeks in that camp. Keith was the commanding officer of Norman Turgill, who arrested Joseph Kramer, the brutal commandant of Belsen. Norman went on to marry Gina Goldfinger, the bride of Belsen. Keith gave Gina away at the wedding ceremony. After Hitler's suicide, when Admiral Dönitz was briefly made head of state, Keith had to arrest him while he was en route for Lübeck. Keith refused promotion to a higher rank and a staff job, preferring to stay with his 11 men who were together throughout the war. They stayed on occupation duty until May 1945, when the section was demobilised. He was mentioned in dispatches. Keith returned to Britain, building a happy life of Audrey in North Somerset. Keep up the good work, Chris Owen Hughes. Our next story this week comes from Piers Brand. Dear gents, this family story is about my paternal grandfather and his twin brother, Albert and Harold. Both were territorials pre-war and were called up in September 1939. My grandfather, Albert Brand, went to the Royal West Kents 
while Brother Harold went to the Buffs, the Royal East Kents. Albert went to France with the BEF, while Harold was posted to Malta and then to Egypt. My grandfather had an eventful time in 1940. I don't think historians have properly captured the terror and brutality of those few weeks, and the sheer mental torture the new war inflicted on men largely unprepared for it. Albert was on the retreat to Dunkirk. His unit was attacked by German aircraft 11 times, shelled by his own side once during a German attack, and was an unfortunate to experience close-quarters fighting among the woods with the SS Germania Regiment, killing at least one with his bare hands. He eventually escaped from Dunkirk Beach, but only after having two of his close friends die next to him during an air raid. After Dunkirk, he was hospitalised with severe shell shock at Leeds Castle. He was discharged in September 1940 as medically unfit for the army and spent the rest of the war working on submarine construction. Albert never recovered from the shell shock, however, and it remained a constant demon for him and those around him. Harold had a very different war. He fought in the desert against the Italians, but his war changed at Alem Hamza in December 1941, after the buffs took point 204. Harold was one of the survivors captured after the last stand of the buffs against a mass German tank attack. Although the buffs' defence caused the German attack to fail, Harold, along with the other survivors, went into the bag. He spent time in an Italian POW camp in northern Italy until the surrender in 1943. One of their guards informed that the Germans were on their way to take over the camp, and Harold, along with the others, decided to make a run for it. With the help of various locals, they eventually reached the Swiss border. At first they thought they'd been captured, but their captors turned out to be Swiss army troops whose uniform bore a similarity to the Germans. He spent the rest of the war interned in a Swiss camp. After the war, Harold returned to Italy to retrace his trek and to thank as many of the Italians who hid them as he could. Best wishes, Piers Brand. Our next story comes from the US, from Joe Hudgens. Hi, James and Al. This story is about my wife's great-uncle, Staff Sergeant Leonard Obermeyer, whose letters I have to say I've been reading, Joe, so thank you for that, from the small town of Rockport, Indiana, on the Ohio River. Leonard enlisted for the duration of the war after Pearl Harbor in February 1942. His brother, Fred, had enlisted a year earlier. Leonard was in the 5th Army, and on September the 9th, 1943, landed with his company, E Company, of the 142nd at Salerno. He was wounded for the first time on December the 9th and earned a bronze star for valour. In January 1944, the brothers found each other in Italy. Leonard told his brother about his combat experience and Fred wrote home to Indiana. The letter was printed in the family's Catholic parish newsletter. Dear folks, I got the surprise of my life Sunday afternoon. I was working alone and someone tapped me on my shoulder. I looked up and there was Leonard. I don't believe I was ever more surprised. This was the first time we'd seen each other in over two years. He was slightly wounded on the 9th of December and was in hospital until the 23rd. He's okay now, but won't be able to go back to his outfit for six or eight weeks. He had a few shrapnel wounds on his left leg, which occurred when an artillery shell fell nearby him. He has certainly seen his share of fighting. The day Italy surrendered, he was on a boat coming across from Africa. He said some of the boys thought they would walk right in Italy then, but as soon as they got near the beach, they changed their minds. Bullets were flying everywhere, right over his head, and one or two pieces of shrapnel hit him in the head. He was telling how he captured six Germans and killed one. 
and about the time he threw hand grenades at a German machine gun nest and listened to the Nazis scream. He said there were lots of times he didn't think he'd be alive the next minute, but somehow he pulled through. Well, anyway, it was a real treat to see him over here, and a great relief to know he's okay. I had not heard from him until today. Christmas Day has come and gone. Well, it didn't seem much like Christmas, but the biggest present I had came a day late when Leonard stepped in unexpectedly. He stayed overnight with me, and we had a wonderful talk of our past experience and what we planned on doing when we get back. It'll be a great day when we get back. As ever, Fred. Leonard was wounded again on September the 22nd, 1944, and again the following February, by which time he was in France. In one of his letters home, he wrote, Those darn Jerry's hit me again. They have about as much love for me as I have for them. He described his wound as just a little piece of shrapnel over the left eye. This was understated, as his citation for the Silver Star for his action describes. 2nd of March, 1945. Leonard A. Obermeyer, Staff Sergeant, for gallantry in action on the 1st of February, 1945 in France. Sergeant Obermeyer, a mortar observer, established his observation post in a power plant only 200 yards from hostile machine gun emplacements. He had been adjusting mortar fire in support of an infantry attack when the enemy laid a heavy artillery barrage on the area. A direct hit almost demolished the building which housed his observation post, shattering the telephone line and severely wounding Sergeant Obermeyer. Despite the intense pain of his injury and the heavy shell fire, he swiftly repaired the wire line and, refusing medical attention, continued directing accurate fire on hostile positions. His skill and courage contributed materially to the success of the infantry assault. I'm sure Leonard never considered himself a hero but he seems to me to be a remarkable example of an ordinary person accomplishing extraordinary things in the face of unimaginable hardship. He was one of so many. Thanks to you both for the service of letting these men and women share their stories. It means so very much to their families that remain with us today. Truly yours, Joe Hudgens, Kansas City, Missouri. That's all for this special episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Bye for now.